0: I'm going to start today like I do most sermons, by talking about motorcycles. Perfect timing. Who heard it? Right? Is it Joe Vi? Yeah. I planned that. I texted that guy. We we all know each other. Um, no, I want to teach you about something. Okay. So, yeah, it's up there. Uh, there's this thing in motor when you're riding motorcycles. It's kind of hard to learn. It's called counter steering. Um, if you've ever played one of those video games like where you're flying and you have to turn backwards to turn, you know, like against your instincts to turn the X-wing or whatever it is, you know? It's a similar idea, but if you mess it up, you die on motorcycles. Okay, so this is how it works. You think it works like this. When you're on a motorcycle, if you have to turn to my left here, you lean left and your instinct is to turn the handlebars the same way that you're leaning, right? Like a bicycle, yes. Motorcycles are going too fast and they're too heavy to do that. If you do that, you'll fall over. It'll, the force will tip you over. So what they teach you is on a motorcycle, you have to lean left and then turn the handlebars the other way as you turn into the turn. Just a little bit. You've got to give it a little bit like this. So this is the illustration. It's called counter steering, and it's very hard to learn because it fights every one of your instincts when you first get on a motorcycle. And this is especially true if you're going at any sort of speed. It's, you have to build this into kind of muscle memory, but it's so counterintuitive. When you're turning, you wanna do like a bike and you wanna turn your handlebars this way. If you've ever seen, I don't know if you guys sit around and just watch videos of motorcycle crashes all day like I do, but the ones where the guys turn real fast and then they turn too sharp and they slide, you know what I mean? And the bike slides out from under them. Um, especially I watched the motorcycle crashes with the, um, what's that? The moto, you know, the the racing. Because those guys had the full suits on. And sometimes they just, they slide and then they stand right up like it's nothing. You know, crashing. I had a friend do that. Crashed at like 100 miles an hour, but he had the suit on. Anyway, but usually what's happening is they're leaning and they didn't counter steer enough, right? They, they steered too far this way and the bike just slips out. Anyway, my point is, it goes against every one of our natural instincts when I'm, right, if I ever get to ride my bike again, right? Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's very hard to turn and, and to think this way. Um, the kingdom of God, the point being the kingdom of God and our um, fallen world, they work exactly the same way, right? Sometimes being in the kingdom of God is like counter-steering. What you're doing is you're fighting your instincts to do something that to your natural fallen broken self seems wrong and backwards. But with kingdom perspective, right, with the the training that you get when you take the motorcycle safety course, right, the kingdom motorcycle safety course teaches you how to do this. And with that knowledge and perspective, right, we know, okay, this is how you're supposed to do it, even though it seems very counterintuitive. Um, Sometimes the best kingdom investment that you can make is something that costs you Not something that benefits you. Right. So when we tend to think of investments, we think of it like this. I'm gonna put money out there or something, whatever it is, and I'm gonna want, I'm gonna get more money back at the end of my investment. And if you don't get more money back at the end of your investment, it was a bad investment. Sometimes kingdom investments, that's how our natural instincts tell us we should, that's how we should live, right? Sometimes kingdom investments, though, kind of go the opposite way. They say, I'm going to put money out there. I'm going to put whatever out there. I'm going to get nothing back. And then that's a good investment. It's so backwards and counterintuitive. Um, hey, can I tell you a quick story, too, by the way? That has nothing to do with anything. I just think it's interesting. Here we go. Ready? Last night, I couldn't fall asleep. I think I fell asleep at 4.30. I laid in bed like this. <laughs> go sleep, you know? Anyway, so I was listening to my World News podcast speaking of investing. And they told a story of some school in England, I think, some college that got hacked. Um, and then the, you know, the Russian hacker guys, I think it was, actually it was a Ukrainian guy, um, uh, demanded, he shut the whole university down demanding Bitcoin. And after a week of we're not giving in, the university gave in, they paid this guy with Bitcoin. Well, anyway, they just found this guy and they raided, I don't know how Bitcoins work, but they raided whatever his Bitcoins is, gave him back to the university, But now the Bitcoin is worth like twice as much as what they paid him. So this whole thing ended up, speaking of investments, the university paid the ransom and ended up making double their, almost a million dollars they made (laughs) after to buy a new gym. Anyway, so I mean, that's kind of how we think of investments though, right? Like if I get something back and it's more, it's good. That's not how it always works in the kingdom of God. Now, real quick, um, today we're going to read the story of Zacchaeus. Um probably Melissa's favorite story, right? No, I'm just kidding. Now I'm dead after church. Um, <laughs> um, I could have thrown this story in with the one we did two weeks ago. So if you remember two weeks ago we read all of chapter 18. And uh, the whole point was, these are all the people that you would not expect Jesus to hold up and say, this is these are the people that are in, right? Do you remember there was the what was it the widow, the tax collector? Uh, you know these stories—the blind Bartimaeus, the children. The, these are all the people that you expect to be on the outside, and the people on the inside, the Pharisees, and all these folks. Jesus goes, "No, they were, I'm flipping it." Zacchaeus. <coughs> sorry, the Zacchaeus story. We could have continued last week, but at, I didn't. Or two weeks ago, but I didn't want the sermon to be three and a half hours, so I, I broke it up. But um, you know, there's a few reasons. It was too. It was too much to read. I want you to see. The second reason I didn't read it with those other ones was I want to make a different point about Zacchaeus. Not that he's in the kingdom of God, but I want you to see what he does once he's in is very important, and we didn't really talk about that last time. Um, He counters steers, right? He does this. He he fights his instincts and he goes the opposite way. Uh, But before we read the Zacchaeus story, I just want to quickly read this part from chapter 18 that we sort of breezed through two weeks ago. Um, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee and the other a tax collector right so jesus like we talked about two weeks ago he has these two these two folks he holds up and in our modern culture right this would be i don't know the two men went up to the temple to pray one of them was the pastor of a megachurch, and the other one was a child molester Right, that's what we talked about. Like, the, the gut hatred that you have when you hear the word child molester is the same, it's not the same crime, but it's the same gut feeling that people had when they heard tax collector back in the day. They did not like these folks, right? So Jesus says, we're going to talk about the pastor and the tax collector. Uh, you know, the pastor and the whatever it is. Um, all right, keep going. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed thus. He prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Right? So we talked about this a little bit. I can't stay. This is the worst prayer in the Bible. Right? Me, 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 and then me some more. And look at this guy, right? Thank goodness I'm me. Right? You, the contempt in this guy's voice, you could, that he points out the tax collector too, means the tax collector sitting right there listening to him. And he's praying out loud, which means everybody else is listening to him. He's trying to prop himself up. And he's saying, Lord, look at all this stuff that I did for you, right? I thank you, but he's not really thanking God, is he? That's just, right? He's not, what he's saying is, look at me, I'm so great. I'm not like extortioners or unjust or adulterers. You know, I fast twice a week. If you remember what I said was, uh, the Old Testament had fasts, what was it, twice a year, this guy's, you know, I, I think that what I said a couple of weeks ago was, um, that would be like if you met with me or something and you were bragging, I could take communion every day. I'm like, okay. <laughs> right? That's kind of what he's doing. I, I give tithes of all that I get, right? Remember the Jesus talking about the guys who separate like the mustard seeds and the, the mint and the, you know, okay, these herbs, right? Nine for me, one for God, Right? This guy's a punk. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the tax collector is very different, isn't he? Right? The only thing he says about himself is, I suck. That's it. That's all he brings to God. I'm terrible. And I'm, he begs for mercy. And you can see it in his posture. He understands who he really is on the inside. He won't even look up. You know, the other guy's praying. Look at me. <laughs> And this guy is just completely beat down. Not going to happen, you know. The only way this works is with mercy. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justification is the court, it's courtroom language, right? What it means is this guy was saved, this guy wasn't. This guy is on the in, this guy is on the outs. For everyone who humbles himself, uh, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the counter steering. That's the backwards, flipped upside down kingdom of God. So Jesus tells this parable right after he tells—there's a couple of more things happen in that story. Heals blind Bartimaeus, all that stuff. Then we open up chapter 19, and we have an example of a real-life actual tax collector, right? And so Luke placed these two things pretty close to each other for a reason. If you're reading through this quickly, you would go, oh, I just read about a tax collector in a parable. Here's a real one. So let's read about this actual real tax collector. Is this thing working behind me, by the way? This is a new, it's like a thing in proclaim. Anyway, I don't know if we'll keep doing it, but i try it once. All right, verse one, he entered Jericho and he was passing through. So Jericho was the town where he healed the blind guy. He healed blind Bartimaeus on his way into the city. So Bartimaeus and his friend, they were on the outside of the city. Jesus is coming in. So the, the, um, the interaction with Zacchaeus is like 10 minutes later. So this is like quite the afternoon Jesus is having here. It, healing Bartimaeus was almost like an afterthought. He's like going into, t- you know, oh, I just gotta stop and pick up some milk real quick. You know, I just gotta stop and heal this blind guy. And then I'm gonna head into town. Um, Jericho is also very close to the city of Jerusalem. So remember, since chapter 9, Luke has pointed out that Jesus is kind of on this beeline for Jerusalem. He's heading for the cross. He's on his way there. Verse 2, And behold, there was a a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So he's a chief tax collector. This is a weird word that doesn't show up anywhere else in literature or... Nobody knows exactly what this is. Chief tax collector is a good way to translate it. Basically, he was some kind of a mob boss, right? Like, you know how the mob works? You've got like the higher ups and you've got the lower guys who go around shaking people down. That's Zacchaeus. He's the higher up mob boss. Um, the, w- the way it worked was Rome would come and they would tell a guy like Zacchaeus, okay, you have to collect a million dollars worth of taxes from this town. That's how much we need from this town then Zacchaeus would hire 10 guys, and he would say to each of these guys, you each need to bring me 200 grand. (laughs) So they bring Zacchaeus $2 million. He keeps a million for himself. He pays them a little bit. And then he gives Rome their million dollars. So you can imagine, this is the only way tax collectors could make money was by ripping people off. There was no salary for this job, right? And so Rome being the occupying force in, in Israel, people hated these guys. And so you can imagine people hated Zacchaeus, right? He's not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. He's like the boss of the tax collectors, right? And it's, Luke specifically says, and he was rich, right? He was really, really good at ripping people off, right? Nobody, it's like nobody wants their pastor to live in a mansion, right? You know, if your pastor lives in a mansion, something's wrong here, you know what I mean? Uh, or, I don't know, you, you don't want him to be rich, right, or politicians, right? How is a politician that's been working in local government since 1960, there's one politician I'm thinking of specifically who used to be my neighbor, how does he own the penthouse at that building around the corner, <laughs> right? He's crooked, that's how. Anyway, all right, verse three. So everybody hates this tax collector because he's just like Willie Br- I didn't say it out loud. Um, verse three, and Uh, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead. He climbed up a sycamore tree, into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So Zacchaeus, he really wants to see Jesus. Why? Well, there's probably a couple reasons. Curiosity, right? I mean, remember, they don't have YouTube back then. You can't just sit at home and do nothing all day, right? You got to find something to do. I heard this guy's coming to town. I mean, even now with all of our modern electronics, every time something exciting happens, we all run to the window. Right, Melissa? Uh, every time, like, uh, what was it? The fire across the street last week? They had the ladder out. Melissa was in heaven, you know? Or uh, when they were filming that movie with The Rock and Melissa spent the entire Saturday in our window and some poor CGI guy had to, like, Photoshop her out of the movie, you know? Well, <laughs> right, well, so even now, it's the same thing. Curiosity, right? Let's see. That's one reason. Um, But remember, everybody you meet has a deeper story than that. Something was going on with Zacchaeus. Maybe the guilt of his job was weighing on him. Maybe he wanted out. Something was going on. There's clearly more than just, I kind of want to see Jesus. Um, But all we know for sure is he wanted to just get a glimpse of this rabbi. He never expected anything more than to just stand there and watch. The problem is he's Melissa at a concert, (laughs) right? Every time we go to concerts, we have to find a spot where Melissa can see. You ever been at a concert and you're standing behind the guy who's 6'7"? You're like, I saw one he was a guy like that. He was like really tall and he had a t-shirt that said sorry on the back of it and he was like standing in the crowd listening to the show. Um, that's the problem, right, um, is he can't see what's going on. So what does he do? He climbs the sycamore tree. Like I went to the Giants parade in 2010 and all these uh, folks that couldn't see, they climbed up on top of telephone poles and um, uh, the Muni stops. They were all sitting on top of the Muni stops. And that made me think of Zacchaeus, right? He climbs up to the top of the Muni. Um, oh, my notes say, here's a picture of a sycamore tree, but I forgot to put that in there. It's a, sycamore trees, I found one picture though. It's like low and wide. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not a big, it's not a redwood tree. So it's pretty easy to climb. Now, Think about, like, kind of imagine that you're there. Right? This is an exciting day. The crowd is buzzing because everybody. It starts to spread through the town that Jesus just healed two blind guys, and you know, two guys that everybody knows are blind, and they're always sitting outside. And now they're walking around talking to everybody, and everybody can, you know, they knows now that they can see. And the crowd is waiting for Jesus to come in. And before Jesus comes in with the crowd, the very front of the crowd is Bartimaeus, right? And somebody like Zacchaeus would have known this guy. Coming in and out of town constantly, you would remember this guy who sat out there and begged, this blind guy. And there's this huge crowd with a ton of energy. So Zacchaeus, he does the prudent thing. He climbs up into the tree. He has absolutely no idea he's about to be pulled into the center of the story. He thinks he's an outsider. I'm a tax collector. Nobody likes me. I'm going to be on the outskirts of this crowd. I'm going to climb a tree just so I can kind of get a glimpse. That's as far as he thought it was going to go but it's about to get way more intense for him. Uh, there's a story of uh, um, this, this kid. His name was Matt Williams. Not my favorite baseball player of all time from the Giants uh, in the late ni- early 90s. Nobody knows Matt Williams? Okay, well, you should. Look it up. No, there was a kid named Matt Williams who went to Texas Tech University. And one day he was sitting in the crowd and they were like, uh, whoever has seat number, you know, whatever his seat was, come on down. And so he goes down onto the field. He just, he was just there to watch. He wasn't expecting to be the center of attention. And they go, okay, you know, if you can kick this, wait, I wrote it down. Um, I think it was a 30-yard field goal, which if you've ever tried to kick a field goal, is almost impossible. I don't know how these guys ever do it. 30 yards is like a legit field goal. Um, if you can kick this 30-yard field goal, you get free, I think it was housing for the year at Texas Tech, you know, nobody ever makes it. This kid, call him as a cucumber, boom, right down the pipes, right? And the coach was like, whoa, (laughs) right? The coach, his name was Mike Leach. He's a punk. I think he got fired for hitting a kid or something. But anyway, uh, (laughs) this is before this all happened. The coach goes, whoa, you know who sucks is our kicker. (laughs) This guy misses every other extra point. They were having a huge problem. They were losing games because their kicker couldn't get extra points. Mike Leach goes up to this kid. Can you do that again? Sure, you know, after the game. He does it a couple of times. So this kid became the kicker of Texas Tech, didn't miss a field goal the entire season. (laughs) They just called his ticket, right? This This is what's about to happen right here. This is what happens with Zacchaeus. And when Jesus came to the place, so he's walking, he's just walking through, Zacchaeus is hanging out in the tree. He looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus knows his name right? For us Westerners, it's an easy detail to just sort of pass right over. But for anybody living in this first century honor-shame world, know, a name was a big deal, right? And no, somebody like this knowing your name would have been absolutely mind-boggling, right? Um, your name carried with it like a sense of honor. And so remember who this guy is and what he does for a living. He stinks. He's a crook and he robs his own people, taking advantage of them to make himself rich, and Luke has already told us that. He's really good at it. He's rich. He's, he's a really good tax collector. That's why everybody hates his guts. Right? And Jesus walks right up and calls out his name. It's pretty cool. Imagine being at a very busy restaurant with a lot of people around. And the whole place is buzzing because Steph Curry just walked in and sat down with his wife and he puts his finals, MVP finals trophy on the table. And his four championship trophies. And his, okay, I could do that all day. Because uh, he's amazing, right? Uh, wait, have we had church since they won? Why am I not decked out in Warriors gear? Anyway, uh, Steph Curry walks in. <clears throat> now, everybody is watching him and his family. You could not sit there and watch him, right? Melissa would be sneaky taking pictures, right? Like, Now, imagine you're at my table with me. We're having dinner. Steph Curry gets up out of his seat, and he walks over to us, and he looks at our table, and he reaches his hand out, and he goes, hey, John, how's it going, man? You come to the barbecue on Saturday? You would all be like, what? (laughs) Steph Curry knows John? No, he doesn't. I do know Jordan Poole now, though, because I met him, and I shook his hand the other day. So I should have changed this illustration. (laughs) right, but anyway, you'd look at me pretty different after that when we were watching Warriors games, and I was yelling at Steph Curry, stop shooting that shot. Oh, wait, never mind, shoot it. It's worked out. (laughs) That's usually how that goes, right? uh, And that's an illustration kind of only in our stupid celebrity culture. In this culture, names and stuff like this were way more important. In an honor culture like this, for Jesus to call out his name is he's saying, I'm, accept, I'm like, I'm accepting this person. I'm giving this person honor. That's a big deal, especially considering who Zacchaeus is, right? And so, <clears throat> look at this too. He doesn't ask, hey, Zacchaeus, what are you doing for dinner tonight? You have plans? That's how we invite ourselves over to people's house for dinner, right? <laughs> and that's fine, because we're supposed to have dinner with each other. That's kind of the whole point of this church thing, right, is to be a community, but. We try to be polite about it. That's not what Jesus does. He, I must. There's an imperative. I must come over to your house for dinner tonight. God has plans for you, and this is how it's going down. Right? He doesn't give Zacchaeus the option of saying no. Do you ever have a friend like that that just says, "Hey, I'm coming over for dinner"? When I was growing up, my dad had a friend named Bobby, and uh, he was single, and he's like my dad's age, I think. Anyway, he was like that. He would just he would call and be like, I'll be there in 10 minutes and then hang up. You know? And then he was there in 10 minutes. And I liked it because he brought steaks over and we had barbecue. But you know, this is what Jesus does. He's Bobby. I'm coming over. Here we go. So he hurried and came down and he received him joyfully. So Zacchaeus hurried out of the tree. You can't hurry out of a tree, can you? So I love this. Just trying to picture this in my mind. I'm picturing uh, Frodo Baggins running. You know what I mean? Just scurrying along, right? The image is hilarious. Tiny little Zacchaeus. Here's the thing about Zacchaeus being short too. People back then were way shorter than we are for a couple of reasons. People have generally gotten taller uh, in the world. The second thing is we eat way better than everybody else did when we're kids. And so we're all a lot taller than these people were. So they're already all short. And if you can imagine, Zacchaeus is the short one of the short people, right? And here he is running. I love this, right? And he runs up to Jesus and he received him joyfully, right? In <clears throat> uh, in communal culture, what this? I mean, this is one of those things that uh, we don't quite understand. But basically, he's accepting him as part of his clan. That's what's happening. Jesus is saying, basically, now you're part of my family, and Zacchaeus is accepting him. All right, verse seven. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest. Of a man who's a sinner. So they all grumble. He eats with sinners. Remember this from a couple chapters ago? This is what I said was the one accusation about Jesus that's absolutely true. He eats with sinners. Jesus goes, Yeah, that's kind of what I'm, yeah, that's the whole thing, you know. (laughs) You got me. Oh no, I eat with sinners. Uh, The contrast here, though, is hilarious. Right? You have Zacchaeus, tiny little Zacchaeus, beaming from ear to ear joyfully running and chasing Jesus. You know he gave him a big hug. It doesn't say it. But, you know, he jumped up and gave him a hug. Um, like when Frodo hugs, uh, what's his name, Gandalf. You know, and he's like 11 feet taller. Right. Hey, I don't do as many Lord of the Rings as Tim Keller. If you ever listen to Tim Keller. I remember once he was doing it, and he was like, boy, they're making these movies in a few years. I think they're going to suck. He was really upset about the movies because he loves the book so much. Anyway, um, <laughs> So you have him in his joy, and then the contrast is everybody else is upset. They're grumbling. Really? You're, you're upset that this guy is repenting and turning his life around? Right, let's keep going. So Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, uh, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So it says he stood up. This is at dinner. So he has everybody over for dinner. Now, if you can imagine, we don't have to, or we have to imagine, but it's not that hard. It's not that big of a leap. Who else was at dinner? Who's Zacchaeus' friends? Right? Pastor's not going, you know. The good. They hate this guy. So who else is going? His other tax collector friends. The 10 guys who also rip everybody off right? And probably the people who are sort of been kicked out of society are there. So here he stands up at this very public dinner, right? So he didn't whisper this to Jesus. He didn't lean in and say, Jesus, I have this idea. What do you think about this? He stands up, like do you remember when Michael Scott declared bankruptcy in the office? No, nobody watches the office. He stands up, I declared bankruptcy. He's like, that's not how it works. But I declared it you know, that's what he does. He stands up and he declares, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give half of my stuff to the poor. This is a radical. That's a lot of stuff, right? Half of everything you own to the poor. And then the second thing he's going to do, he's going to make restitution to all the people he ripped off. Now, the Westerner part of me who likes numbers to be exact, even though I failed every math class I ever took, uh, who likes numbers to be exact, always wondered how this worked. okay. I don't have an answer for this, I'm just thinking out loud. If I steal a dollar from Dennis, which I've totally done, just kidding. If I steal a dollar from Dennis, I have a dollar. But if I promise to pay back four times what I stole, where do I get the other three (laughs) dollars to pay everybody? All of my income comes from stealing from people. So now all of a sudden I'm in for four times as much as I stole. I've always wondered about the math of this and I don't know. That's 21st century guy and it completely misses the point. The point is the attitude. He's come into the upside-down kingdom. His entire worldview has flipped, and now he's repenting, and real repentance shows up in your life. It's not just, I'm going to go confess a sin, and then I'm done with it. It's, I'm going to do something about it. And so he's acting on it. It's the kind of external evidence of this internal reality. He's been accepted into the family of Jesus, and uh, keep going. Verse nine. Jesus said to him, "Today salvation has come to this house, since he, uh, since he also is a son of Abraham." So Jesus says he's saved because he's a son of Abraham. Now, what does he mean by that? Now, remember, he's a tax collector working for the Romans. He's a traitor in the eyes of most of the people in the city of Jericho who knew this guy. He has forfeited his place in the community. He's no longer a part of the Jewish people. He's been kicked out. and Jesus is saying, you guys don't think he's a son of Abraham anymore, but actually he's a son of Abraham in a much greater sense. Not that he's born as a son of Abraham, but he's been brought into the, the kingdom people of God. right? Romans kind of talks about this a lot about um, you know the, the Gentiles being grafted in and all that stuff. And so what Jesus is saying here is, while you guys are upstanding, members of the clan, the community. He's a member of the community that matters even more. And we see the evidence of that in his repentance. And so how did this all happen, though? How did he go from tax collector to valued part of Jesus's community? The last sentence there, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is Jesus's mission, mission purpose statement, whatever you want to call it, right? So a lot of people will say, oh, Jesus was just a really good teacher, was he a good teacher? Sure. Was that the main thing he came to do? No. A lot of people say he's a good example. He's just a good moral, we should follow, kind of live like he does. Is that true? Should we live like Jesus? Absolutely. Is that the main thing he came to do? Absolutely not. The main thing he came to do is to find the lost, to go after them, find them, and save them. Do you remember chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep? The shepherd goes to find the one that took off and then you have the parable of the lost coin, the lady looking for the lost coin. And then, uh, then we have the brothers, the two brothers that are lost, the prodigal son story. Now remember this um, from there. At the end of, each of, at the, end of the, the sheep and the coin, Jesus says, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And just so I tell you there will be joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There was a party in heaven when Jesus found one of these folks. Zacchaeus is one of those people. And so when Zacchaeus stood up at this party and said, I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor, and I'm going to restore what I've ripped people off fourfold. This is a sign of repentance. I'm following Jesus now. I'm part of this kingdom. In heaven, they popped the champagne angels were partying. They got the disco ball down. By the way, anybody notice at Trinity they have a disco ball in their church? It's pretty epic. I told Drew to turn it on for lunch, you know, and he was like, oh sure. And I was like, no, I'm just kidding. Like he was actually going to do it. Um, (laughs) Anyway, there's a party in heaven. Everybody's going nuts. Now, scripture doesn't mention Zacchaeus ever again. This is the only stuff we have about Zacchaeus. But a little bit later, there was a guy named Clement of Alexandria. He lived in the second century, so about a hundred years after this. And he actually tells us more about Zacchaeus. And what he says in a sermon, so this is like hearing a story from your grandpa, you know, I mean, about that distance away. Like, he would know. It's still close enough that this could very much be true. He tells us that Zacchaeus continued his life of faith, and he ended up becoming a teacher of the faith, and he ended his life as a bishop in the city of Caesarea, up kind of closer to where Jesus is from, right? He ended up the pastor of the pastors, the bishop. And now, I hate to break it to you, but Zacchaeus is dead. (laughs) He didn't make it 2,000 years. He died of something. I don't know what happened. He got hit by a chariot or a heart attack, something. Whatever it was, Zacchaeus died. And now, every time somebody comes to faith, he parties with Jesus in heaven. And he goes, hey, do you remember that time I was sitting in a tree? (laughs) And Jesus goes, yeah, man, everybody remembers. It's in the Bible. Look it up. All right, so now we're going to quickly read through this next parable about investing. So that's the Zacchaeus story. Now let's jump into this part here, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Luke tells us why Jesus told this parable. Because all these cool things that Jesus is doing now— People are expecting the Messiah to come. They're expecting him to be the Messiah, but they're expecting the wrong kind of Messiah. They think somebody's going to come in, they're going to de- raise an army and defeat the Romans, and they thought it was going to happen right now. What they're doing is they're seeing the way of the world, the normal way. They're not counter-steering, right? They're not, they're not doing the backwards kingdom stuff. Verse 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. So there's actually some really interesting historical context here. You know Herod the Great? You heard that name from the Bible, you know? He built the temple, did all this stuff. Uh, he was a real turkey. Um, that's the theological term. Uh, he was a turkey. So anyway, he had a bunch of kids. I think it was Herod the Great's kids. I could be wrong about that. It could be Herod's grandkids. I don't remember. There's a lot of Herods, right? The chart of all the different Herods is pretty intense. Um, But there were three kids at one point, I wrote their names down, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. And they were all at one point fighting over who got to rule this kingdom. And so the son, one of the the oldest one, Archelaus, he went to Rome to beg the emperor, Caesar Augustus, hey, make me the king of this area. And at the same time, the Jewish folks sent a delegation to Rome saying, we hate this guy, don't let him be our king. We hate all of them, actually, don't let any of them be the king. And so when he left, uh, apparently this is what happened, he he famously left a bunch of flunkies in charge of the treasury back home, and they did a terrible job while he was gone. And then uh, the emperor has the audience with him and goes, I'm not going to make you the king. He makes him basically a governor, kind of, but still under his authority and all that. Um, So anyway, that was a very famous thing that had just happened. Okay. So when Jesus now... With the context, that's the context. It doesn't super interpret the parable, but it's just kind of helpful to note. Jesus picked a very famous story from their local politics to tell this story. So verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10, I should have looked up how to say this. Mina, mina? Let's let's just decide one and pretend that's it. Minas. Uh, And he said to them, engage in business until I come. So the mina was, I looked this up, three months' wages. That's a pretty good chunk of money. Now, um, he tells them, engage in business. So he, I, he takes these servants, gives them some money, go invest in this. Now, um, if you can imagine, this is like a money manager today, but with a lot of leeway. They don't have to get your approval where they're going to invest your money. Notice what the king doesn't say, he doesn't say, make me money right? He says, engage in business. That's different. It's, it, he's kind of saying, give it a shot. Go for it. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Just like the Jews sent a delegation to the emperor, uh, just like with Archelaus. So the king, uh, yeah, so anyway, I keep going. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants whom he had given the money to, to be called to him that he might know uh, what they had gained by doing business. So he gets his servants back together and he says, what have you guys been up to? Right. Uh, he wants to know, right. It's like, um, if you've done this at work, uh, what's it called? I never had a real job, a, um, performance review, right. I actually have had that, right. But you know, you go into your performance review and you're a little bit scared because you're like, I don't know how this is going to go. That's kind of what these guys are going through. they got to meet with the boss. They've got, they got to show what they've been up to. All right. The first came in before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minnas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, uh, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came in, saying, Lord, your minna has made five more minnas. And he said, And you are to be over five cities. So the first guy comes in. Let's do the math. Minimum wage in San Francisco, if you worked 40 hours a week, is about $2,500 a month. A little bit less, but let's round. Okay. So let's say three months, just minimum wage, is $7,500. That's how much this guy asked them all to invest and engage a business. So the first guy takes that $7,500, $7, he comes back with 75 dollars extra. That's pretty good return. If you had an investment guy that came back with that after a few months, you'd be like, "Mm, "This is probably a Ponzi scheme," but you might be like, "Oh, this is great." Okay, so this he says, "Great, you seem like the kind of guy that I want to put in charge of more money, right? In charge of more of my stuff." The second guy, same deal. He turns 75. He this guy's such a chump. He turns 7,500 into only (laughs) 37.5. Still fantastic return, right? Amazing. Now. He says you're going to be in charge of these cities. You're going to be. In. What does this mean? I'm going to read you the ESV Study Bible note. Uh, Faithful carrying out of stewardship responsibilities in this life will result in being given a greater responsibility and stewardship in the life to come. So basically, I don't want to promise you anything. I don't want to stand here and go, "If your kingdom investment, you're guaranteed this," because the truth is, we have no idea what this looks like. It's a picture ruling over a city means you're given authority. Something in heaven, you're gonna, some way in heaven, you're going to be rewarded. Right? Corinthians 3 says, 1 Corinthians 3, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Meaning something uh, in heaven, is God is going to, somehow, he's going to reward his people for faithfulness. We don't know what that looks like. But here's the thing. We know that the perfect good God is the one coming up with these rewards, so they're probably going to be great. You ever taken a bite of a steak, like that middle juicy piece that you're like, this might be the best thing that's ever happened to me? The God that invented cows so that you could eat steak is the guy that says, I'm going to come up with some kind of dope rewards. So we can trust it's going to be awesome. We don't know what it's going to be. All right, let's keep going. Then another came, said, Lord, the third one, here is your minute, which I have kept in a handkerchief. I've, I've kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man you, did not take what you, do, uh, you take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. Third guy comes, I didn't do anything with it. He specifically disobeyed the command. The command wasn't to make money, the command was to engage in business. And the reason, I'm a massive chicken and I'm totally afraid of you. So how does the master respond? He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have at least collected it with interest. So he says, your own words. You have no excuse for this. He literally did nothing with his money. Imagine that you go to a money manager and you say, I have $10,000 to invest. I'll see you in 10 years. Come back in 10 years. How'd you do? And the guy says, well, I was really worried that you'd be mad if it didn't do very well. So uh, I took your check, I cashed it, and I've kept the money in my drawer the whole time. Here's your $10,000 back. Well, with inflation at 86% or whatever it's at right now, <laughs> you'd be pretty mad, right? You just cost me money, dude. At least put it in the bank. That's wh- that was what's going on with the master. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him, give it to the one who has 10 minnas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minnas. I tell you, everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, slaughter them before me. So some interpreters try to pin this down to something more specific like the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which Jesus is actually going to talk about in a few weeks. I think it's more basic and general than that. Basically, it's some people are faithful in the kingdom of God. They're willing to invest for the Lord, and others are not. They don't get it. And being outside the kingdom of God has consequences in eternity, in judgment. Right? It's sort of a general teaching. And so the point um, the Lord is making is pretty clear Right? in these two things. We want to invest for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus, yeah, Jesus doesn't want you to take what he's entrusted you with and have you just sit on it. But that leaves the question, doesn't it? What does kingdom investing look like? Right? What, what does it mean to invest for the kingdom? When we think of investing, we think of power and wealth. We think of the normal power dynamic in the world, the pyramid structure, where the more you have, the more high up you are in the pyramid, and everybody below you is supporting you. Zacchaeus' story, the reason I read these two stories together is I think Luke put them together for a reason. The Zacchaeus' story gives us the interpretive key for the parable. What does kingdom investing look like? If you just read the second parable, we would impose our Western 21st century business mindset on this parable. But I don't think that's what's going on. It's not the typical type of investing where you put in money and you hope for more money. Kingdom investing is upside down. It's counter-steering. You have to fight your instincts, right? Do you remember the parable of the shrewd manager, if anybody was there for that one, Um, or heard the podcast? I think I taught it at, I don't remember, did I teach it here? No, I taught it at First Pres, I think, when we did a joint service. But anyway, the story goes, this guy gets fired because he's managing somebody else's money, he's doing a terrible job. So what he does is he calls in all the the master's debtors. And he says, What do you owe? 100 bucks. Okay, put 50. What do you owe? 100 grand. Okay, put 50 grand. Hoping that somebody will take him in. And Jesus goes, You should be like that guy. And what we said was, not in that the dishonesty of it, but what this guy did was he looked at what he had in front of him and he looked at his ultimate goals and he said, How can this get me to there? And that's what we're supposed to do, but with kingdom stuff. What are our kingdom goals? Right? The, the, that's the whole point. Uh, is to look at what we have in front of us, look at our kingdom goals, and say, how do we move from here to there? Now, if we look at the story of Zacchaeus, not only did he make restitution for the way he ripped people off, but he went above and beyond that. And he gave a lot of what he had, half of what he had, to the poor. Why did he do that? Because all of a sudden he had kingdom perspective. Poverty is a result of the fall. And the kingdom of God is about putting things back together the way they were before the fall, so when a hungry person eats a, stand, a sandwich, instead of going hungry, right, the world gets a small glimpse of eternity, right? We have these little lights of eternity. So the parable then here is not how can you make God more money with the money that you have. It's about how can you invest in your life in a way that countersteers, in a way that seems backwards to the world, but is going to pay off in eternity. And the ultimate example of this, I said earlier, was Jesus just a good example for us? Well, he was, but he was so much more. But in one of the ways, Jesus is the ultimate example of this kind of counter-steering, right? Think about his whole life. Born, I mean, God becoming a human. That's backwards. Living in a backwoods part of the world, born in a barn to a teenage mom, who everybody in her circle thought was immoral, let's just say. He lived with very little possessions. He picked a bunch of losers for his disciples. He hung out constantly with the outsiders. He had dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes. And then ultimately, he won by dying. Everything about Jesus' life screams counter-steering. It screams everything backwards investing. And by him doing that, what it did was it created us. It redeemed us. We're the people of God because Jesus lived his life upside down. And we then try to emulate his life in our kingdom living, don't we? We should be these kind of people. So how do we do that? What's the application? How does that actually work? Uh, Oh, there we go. Let me give you a couple ways. Well, okay, let me say this. It's easy to read this stuff about investing and automatically go to our Western mindset of Wall Street and Robin Hood apps and all this, you know, the... uh, Anyway, thinking money. I think we can stretch this further than money, right? There's more ways that we invest. The first is time, right? Think about how much time is a limited resource in your life. And the thing is, you also have no idea how much you have left. Let's be honest. We don't know. And so do you think of time? How do you spend your time for the kingdom of God? What do you do? I mean, I don't have answers. I want you to think about this and write this down and think about it later. I want you to think about that, though. Do you spend your time radically different than the way everybody else does? Or is your, the way you spend time crazy like the way Zacchaeus spends money? Do people go, how does the math work on that? <laughs> right? Second thing, not just time, energy. Think about Do you think about that? Do you think about energy as a finite resource in your life? Do you rest so that you have energy? Do you take care of yourself? Do you spend all your energy on stuff that just makes you happy for a couple of minutes or happy now? Or are you investing your energy in something that's going to make you happy for eternity? Next, ability to learn, right? Do you remember when you were a kid and you thought you'd be a grown-up and you'd be super smart? And now that you're a grown-up, all you know is how much stuff you don't know? And then every time you're like, you know what, I'm going to learn about this. And you go to Wikipedia and you read it. And then all you do is realize how much more you don't know, right? Because the truth is you only have a capacity to learn so much. That's why we have a, like, if you have a doctor, I don't want my doctor to be the best musician in the world. I want him to be the best doctor in the world. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, we only have so much ability to learn. So I'm not just talking studying the Bible, but just learning whatever it is you do for the glory of God. Like, are you focused in, like, how you learn and take in new information? Or do you just watch TV all day and you never really learn anything? Are you growing in a way that will help you benefit the kingdom of God? The next one is the obvious one, money. We've talked about money a ton in the last few months because Jesus has talked about money. But do you invest your money in ways that you will eventually get to heaven and go, I'm really glad I did that. The next is capacity to worship, right? Like um, what I mean by this is just what are the things in your life that you're placing hope in, right? And are those things kingdom things or are you placing your hope in something lesser? Bandwidth for relationships This is the last one I have here. This is, this is a good one. Do you intentionally invest in hard relationships? Right. Our, what's our natural mode is to just spend time with people that are easy to spend time with, to spend time with our friends who are a lot like us and in similar life stages and who don't stress us out, right? Do you default to the easy ones or do you counter-steer and spend time investing in relationships that are hard? There was probably more of these we could have thought of. Anybody have one off the top of your head? From a list? Heaven's pointing to the top of our head. That's not what I meant. No? Right? I mean, spend some time thinking. You can think of something else, where you should be investing in kingdom uh, counter-steering. But anyway, I guess the whole point of this sermon then was this. Let me just end with this is we don't want to be the kind of people that constantly just default to whatever's the easiest thing. That's what we do. Because when we default to whatever's the easiest thing, we turn our bikes into the the turn and we crash, right? Our intuition, our natural inclination is fallen and broken and is bent towards ourselves and bent towards sin. Kingdom living says we got to counter-steer. Kingdom living says we got to do things that to us will seem backwards but they're not right in in kingdom life we want to do things that'll cost us now but will pay off in eternity and we do that with all of this time energy ability to learn money capacity to worship relationships that are hard we do all of this stuff because we know where we're headed and we know where our hope is and we do this the main reason is because this is exactly what Jesus did for us look at this list did he spend time he didn't have to spend so that you could get saved did he spend energy that he didn't have to spend so you could get saved? Yeah, all of this stuff. Ability to learn, money, right? Worship, bandwidth for relationships. You, it's a, um, everything that Jesus did gives us this example of living in this upside-down kingdom. And we're not a big church. We're a pretty small little church. But if all of us here really start living like this in how we spend our time and our money and our energy and all this stuff, we're going to have a much bigger impact than just the size of our church in San Francisco. People are going to notice the sort of backwards counter-steering kingdom living. And that's my deep prayer for all of us.